whenever we consider theology, whenever we consider popular opinions in churches, whether it be promoted the highest theological level or at the very level of the local congregations, we always must ultimately come back to the issue of what saith the Lord in His Word? What saith the Lord in His Word? There can be times and issues where it devolves into debates about what one person says about what another person says who may have commented on the Scriptures at one point in time. And uh, I, I tend to not get deeply invested in debates about what certain theologians believe or don't believe when the key issue is what does God say and what are we to believe? Well, as we've been going through the book of Revelation and as we've done various messages also in this study about end times events in general, some of you may have been hearing some things that are contrary to what you've heard perhaps growing up, perhaps what you were taught all your lives in different settings and in different churches. And I trust that as we've examined some issues about which there is controversy and which there is disagreement amongst believers, that you've seen that we are trying to examine God's word and ultimately trying to learn practically from God's word what he wants of us and in what ways these things are an encouragement or a challenge to us. Because here's a reality, and it is something I brought out in the first message we did about the book of Revelation, is that ultimately, when the writers of Scripture speak about the eschaton, or the the end times, the final events in human history, that those are not given... Those events, those details are not given just so that we can gain an intellectual knowledge, but they are given ultimately to compel us toward action. They are ultimately given to warn us to be watchful, for instance, and to be ready when Christ comes. In the heat and debate that swirls around discussions in the different camps of eschatology, what can happen is that people can get so focused on the differences of opinion in those debates that they miss the clear, clear exhortations in all the passages of Scripture speaking about the end times, about what God wanted us to learn from this knowledge. <laughs> and today we're going to study a passage that is highly disputed and contested, depending on what camp one is in. But in the end game, I want us not just to come away with a knowledge of the text and, okay, now I have more information to support my, my view. I want us to come away with what does God want us to learn from this? And how does this affect how we live? Okay? So what we're going to do today is we're actually going to examine Matthew chapter 24 and what's called the Olivet Discourse. The reason I'm doing this at this point in our study in Revelation is that there are many parallels between the, the breaking of the six seals and what Jesus teaches in Matthew chapter 24. And so I want us to examine Matthew 24 and see what the Lord would have us to learn from it. So in Matthew chapter 24, beginning with verse 1, it says, Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to him, to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, pestilences, earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. 
Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. Then the end will come. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. Therefore, if they say to you, look, he is in the desert, do not go out. Or look, he's in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now learn this parable from the fig tree when its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves. You know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, and the other left. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect. We'll stop right there. I don't know about you, but as I read this, I see multiple practical exhortations. I see multiple encouragements. And then I do see things that stand out and we think about in regards to end times and the different views of eschatology. Well, let's briefly walk through this long passage and let's see if we can understand a little bit about the structure and a little bit about what God would have us to learn from it. So the setting here, the disciples point out to Jesus the temple, and it was a glorious temple. And Jesus makes this prophecy and says, Do you not see all these things? Surely I say to you, not one stone will be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Not only is Jesus the one of whom the prophets prophesied, Jesus is a prophecy whose prophecy was fulfilled. So great evidence that we are not following a pipe dream, that we are not delusional, but our faith is grounded in truth. One, all the prophecies about Christ that were fulfilled in his coming. I've been presenting this to the men at the jail. There were a couple men, mathematicians, who took just eight of the prophecies regarding Jesus, such as things that he would be born in Bethlehem and that he would be crucified on a cross. And... These were eight things that are outside of a human's control. They couldn't make it happen to them. And prophesied of Jesus, some of them up to a thousand years previously. And they said the the probability, and I'm not a mathematician. They said the probability of those prophecies being fulfilled in one person 
in one lifetime, was 10 to the 17th power. Now, for some of you, if you're mathematicians, you understand that. I don't so much. So they gave this illustration. They said, if you take silver dollar coins and spread them two feet deep over the entire state of Texas, you mark one of those coins, you blindfold a man and say, now you've got one shot, go and find the one coin. The probability of his his finding that coin is the same probability as those prophecies being fulfilled in the life of one man. Astronomical improbability unless there's a sovereign God who decreed that it would take place. But you see, not only was Jesus the one of whom the prophet spoke, Jesus is also a prophet. And he says here, not one stone shall be left upon another. He prophesied this in the early 30s AD. And by 70 AD, the Roman army, led by General Titus, had taken control of Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed. And Jesus' prophecy came true. He is the prophet of all prophets and the prophet of whom the prophet spoke. Well, as a result of this statement, the disciples then come to him privately and they say, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, Are they asking three questions? Are they asking two questions? Are they asking one question? That's highly debated. Okay? Clearly, Jesus' statement in verse 2 regards or refers to the events in AD 70 that were fulfilled at that time. So they say, Tell us when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? I think it's very probable that the disciples think that all those things are going to take place at the same time. We don't need to presume that the disciples had precise knowledge because they oftentimes displayed very imprecise knowledge. And so very probably they were thinking, oh, what Jesus says is going to happen when Jesus, when he returns and the end of the age, everything's going to culminate then. Okay? I think that's probably what they're thinking. Some have broken this down into three questions and then they see these three questions specifically answered in what follows. Some have broken it down into two. I think it's a little bit, a little bit messier than that, in, in my opinion. But let's think about this just practically for a minute. What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Remember what we examined from the scriptures about the two ages. All of human history can be divided into two ages, this age and the age to come, And the age to come does not begin until Christ returns bodily. And Christ will return one time. He will return. There will be the resurrection of the dead. There will be the judgment, the new heavens and the new earth, the new age ushered in. So in this question is the question of the sign of your coming, the second return of Christ, and of the end of the age. Now, as we break this down, I'm not going to take the time this morning, but if we want to discuss it afterwards, we can, to discuss all of the differences of each of the positions and how they structure this passage. But I think, and I'm going to try and demonstrate from the text, that it makes sense to structure this passage as seeing Jesus giving one general statements about the persecutions that the church will endure, and then at one point giving some specific details about what is going to take place in AD 70, and then outlining details about the final coming, the second coming, his bodily return. And so as we walk through, I I think that it's helpful to divide it in this way. Just looking at the structure, some of the key issues that we have to consider are things such as the time text here. 
If you look to verse 34, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. We have to answer the question, what are all these things that he's speaking of? Which is this generation that he's talking about? Is he talking about the generation alive at the time that he was speaking right then? Is he talking about some future generation? Is he simply saying that the Jews will still be in existence as an ethnical people at the time when these things happen? Those are all questions that we need to answer, but however we structure this has to deal with time texts such as this. This generation will not pass away. And we'll seek to consider that. Then there's statements such as, Jesus mentions those days in verse 22, unless those days were shortened. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, verse 29. Again, specific reference to specific days. What are those days? And how does that fit the interpretation of the structure? I'm going to present it this way, and I realize that this is a a complex passage to sort out, but what we're going to see after we do a little bit of the sorting, like I mentioned, there are many practical exhortations to us here, and we're going to emphasize those. All right? If nothing else, as we study the Word of God, and we study Revelation, and we study end times events, what we should come away with is that there are big picture principles that God has given us for our good and His glory that we can all agree on. And those are the things, ultimately, that I think are the emphasis. And so we will consider those. But... To interpret God's word rightly, we've, we've got to deal with issues of the structure. And, and I do like to consider where godly men have had differences. Rather than just stand up and always preach one side and never indicate that anybody has ever disagreed. Have any of you ever heard end times events presented in such a way as the listener would walk away if they had no other knowledge and say, oh, well, this is what everybody believes and this is what you have to believe and nobody disagrees with that. I've heard that many different times and I don't think that's helpful for us. So here's a way that I think can help us to make sense of the structure of this passage. In... Verses 4 down through 14, I believe Jesus is making some general statements about difficulties and hardships in this life and in this world that are characteristic of all of this age. Remember what the scriptures say, this age is a present evil age. Remember what we saw in the opening of the four seals, where there were wars where there were social conflicts, where there was economic hardship and there's widespread death. This section parallels those types of (coughs) hardships, but also includes false prophets and false Christs arising in order to try and deceive God's people. So I believe these are general characteristics of this evil age. Then I believe verses 15 through 21 give some specific details that relate to what would take place preceding and during A.D. 70 in the destruction of the temple. So things such as this great tribulation that would take place, the abomination of desolation. I believe that that has already been fulfilled. And Jesus is focusing on that specifically. And then, I believe Jesus steps back again and focuses in verse 22 and following down to when he begins to talk about his final return. Again, about some general characteristics of this evil age. And if you're familiar with structural language or terminology like in writing, I believe what we have here is an inclusio. An inclusio is where 
at the beginning of a, a section of the writing, whether it be a, a paragraph or whether it be a chapter or an entire book or whatever else, you start off with a particular theme and then you wrap up that section by talking about the same theme. Okay? So if you started off a sermon and you look at a text such as 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection of Jesus and then you talk about the resurrection generally through the sermon and make different points and you come back to 1 Corinthians 15 at the end and emphasize and tie it all up by focusing on what you said in the introduction and how that all fits together, that would be an inclusio. I think it's very likely that we have an inclusio here because notice in verse 4, Jesus said, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, will deceive many. He starts off talking about false Christs. And then what do we see in verse 23? That if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will rise. So I believe that we have an inclusio here. False Christ, and then he talks about false Christ again. And in the midst of that, we have statements generally about the persecutions and hardships and things in this present evil age, and we also have some specific mentions mentions about A.D. 70 and what would take place there. And then Jesus goes on to talk about his final return. So that's how we're going to approach this text structurally. Now, those that are in the dispensational camp would say that most of them would say the only thing that is referring to our current history at all is in verse 2, the statement about the temple being destroyed, and that was fulfilled in AD 70. But everything else here is talking about the seven-year tribulation period, most of them will say. And then the secret rapture, many of them will say, is verse 36. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. And that... there's a reference to the secret rapture, but the things such as the abomination of desolation and, and many of these things, uh, many of them will say those are part of this, the tribulation period. Some will say that many of the things in verses 3 through 14 will precede or come before the rapture, but then after the rapture you have this great tribulation and that's what takes place in the seven-year tribulation period. And some will be mid-trib, you know, say Jesus is going to return halfway through that, three and a half years, you know, some full pre-trib, and they'll say that Jesus will come back after the seven years, but these are things specific to that. Um, I'm, not, I'm not approaching it from that perspective. And in regards to this text itself, I don't think that that lends itself to the structure. I don't think that the statement... I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place, is well supported by that. And I think they, they miss a few things, such as, and in the days of Noah, one person taken and the other person left, and what that refers to, and we'll look at that in just a moment. I will say, though, as well, another perspective on this is the partial preterist perspective, and it says that most partial preterists will say that all of this is referring to what happened before A.D. 70, except for perhaps, but of that day and hour, no one knows even the angels of heaven. And some will say that's a reference to the final return of Christ. But they'll say all these other details referred prior to A.D. 70. And in one sense, this gives, uh, it has a very, you know, a great strength, and that is it deals with the time text very well. This generation will not pass till all these things take place. The reason I don't believe, though, that this entire section promotes that is I, I simply cannot get around the statements regarding, like in verse 26, the coming of the Son of Man, and then it says... In 30, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. I cannot 
read all of Scripture and say that was referring to A.D. 70 because there's so many parallel passages that use those same, that same language and describe the same event as coming at Christ's final return. The sound of the trumpet, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The angels being sent forth in the harvest to gather the elect. Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the wheat and the weeds, in which it says at the end of this age comes the harvest and God will send forth all the angels and they will gather in. Those are statements all referring to the final return of Christ. And so I I really think that you've got to do some gymnastics to try and make this fit AD 70. But again, there are very godly men who hold to different opinions on this. And in the end, these views are both within the Christian camp and the practical exhortations that are here, we must all agree on. Okay? So let's, let's walk through some things more specifically here. In this first section, verses 4 through 14, I believe, again, we have general statements about this evil age and what God's children should expect in this evil age. And I've been preaching to us over and over and over again, and I'll keep emphasizing it as we go through the book of Revelation, that you should not expect to live your lives in the comfort that you now have in the United States of America in the 21st century. We should not expect this. We should say praise God for what he's given us, but this is not the norm In Christian experience throughout history, it is not the norm in Christian experience throughout the world right now. And we ought not to live with a myopic view of our experience making it the norm and saying all Christians everywhere and all of theology and all of life is based on my experience United States of America, 21st century, Bible Belt. It's not the norm. Here's what we should expect. Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. Now we've got people in the Bible Belt who are coming and promoting themselves as messiahs, little Christ, anointed ones. I'm the anointed of God. I'm an anointed prophet. I'm an the anointed one. There have been some in history who have come and have said literally, you know, I am the Christ, I am the, the anointed one of God, the Messiah, the one to make the world right, and you've got to follow me. But there are plenty of false teachers who will stand up and say, I am a called, chosen one of God, and you ought to believe me. And that goes on all around us today, as it always has. I am the Christ and will deceive many. Now notice, notice this, many. One of the reasons, quite frankly, I'm not a post-millennialist is the many statements like many here. That as you look at the, the overall testimony of Scripture, you see that few ultimately are truly saved. How many make it to eternal life, as Jesus describes the way and the gate. Few there are who are saved. There are many statements in Scripture to, the, to this effect. Now in Revelation, it does say that there's a great throng around the throne which no man can number, and those are the elect of God. But if we think about all of human history, all of the people that God has saved throughout human history including potentially if the Lord in his mercy has saved all children who have died in the womb, and if we realize that we have no idea how long it's going to be before Jesus comes back. It could be thousands of years before Christ returns. It could be hundreds of thousands, tens of thousands. We don't know. We simply don't know. And the picture in Revelation is a picture of all those throughout all of the ages that God has saved. And when you add all of them up, there there will be quite a few. But at any given point in time, any given generation, 
and you look at all of people alive on the face of the earth, except for an instance, say like Noah and the flood, there are few, relatively few saved in comparison to the, the entire population. Many will come in my name saying, I am Christ and will deceive many. So that's one sign in this general section. Now, lest we get concerned and start saying, oh no, what if somebody comes and they say, I'm Jesus, and it really is Jesus, and I don't recognize him. I remember thinking that as a kid. I really do. It's, it's, a, it's in one sense a legitimate concern, but the Lord answers that very helpfully for us. Okay? But what if Jesus really does come and he's on the earth and he's preaching and teaching and, and I don't recognize him because I'm concerned about not wanting to follow a false Christ? Well, what does Jesus say in this inclusio section toward the end? He says, Then if anyone says, Look, here is the Christ, or there, do not believe it. That's a direct statement. If there's ever a time in this life where somebody says, Hey, do you see on Facebook, Jesus is here. I just caught the news, Jesus is here. Here's the categorical statement. Jesus is not here. Do not believe it. That's what Jesus says. And he goes on to say that these false prophets and false Christs would seek to deceive even God's elect if it were possible. What's the implication? It's not possible. Two, he goes on to say that the coming of the Son of Man, he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. And that ties in with 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, chapter four the sound of the trumpet, the shout of the archangel. Nobody's going to miss it. You're going to hear that. And secondly, Jesus says, the elect will be gathered together from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. You're going to be gathered together. Jesus is going to come and get you. The angels are going to grab you and take you to Jesus. You're not going to miss it. Andy says, for as the lightning, in verse 27, comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. If you, if you see a massive lightning bolt, it lights up the whole sky. That's the picture. You're not going to miss him. The whole sky explodes with light. And then what is the next statement? For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. This is a picture of carrion gathered on dead meat. Vultures, buzzards, those are a good parallel with us because we're very familiar with them. They have an uncanny ability to find the carcass. They don't miss those dead carcasses out there. The picture, these pictures that Jesus is giving here is, there is no way you're going to miss me. If somebody comes and says, I'm the Christ, they're a liar. Because when this happens, it is going to be so massive, so explosive, so universal, so cataclysmic, so everybody just in awe on their faces. No one will miss it. And so the idea, you know, Charles Taz Russell says Jesus is coming back and then he doesn't come back and then to save face he said, oh, Jesus came back spiritually. Nonsense. You're not going to miss Jesus in his final coming. It will not be possible. And all these texts that are used to speak about, that do speak about his final coming, you know, are, are such as these. You will not miss it. Is that encouraging? Is that encouraging? Now, does that mean that does that mean that we shouldn't be wary in listening to the doctrine of TV preachers and others and be discerning? No, it doesn't mean we shouldn't be discerning. God says, make your calling and election sure. That means when you turn on the TV and Joel Osteen's up there just smiling away and trying to encourage you that you need to exercise discernment. 
Because if you buy into his worldview and his way of approaching the scriptures, you will be led on the path toward hell. And I say that after doing research this week. You know, I've been familiar with him for a while, but I've, I've, I went and listened to some of his messages, watched some of his interviews this week. The guy's a charlatan. He's a false teacher. He may believe what he's saying, but he is a false prophet. He preached a message called, It is finished. And you know what Jesus was really all about when he said, It is finished on the cross? All about promoting your health, wealth, and prosperity materially. And so you need to say, It is finished to people who are keeping you from fulfilling your full potential. And it is, you know, he never once preached the atonement and the work that Christ actually did. And he has said in his interviews, and the one interview out there, that I found where he, he says homosexuality is a sin. It's because he was nailed down and he couldn't get around it. And he qualified what he said by saying, you know, it's just, I, I'm, I'm an encourager. I only say things like this in interviews, he says. I don't say it from the, pat, from the pulpit, you know. I'm just an encourager and I, I just stay in my lane. Here's the reality, folks. You can understand a false prophet If the false prophet, one, preaches a false gospel, and the gospel of health, wealth, and prosperity in this life is a false gospel, just read passages like this. Read the book of Revelation. Read the Bible. Okay? Secondly, you can clearly identify if it's a false prophet when they will only pick and choose certain parts of the Bible and focus on that and will not give people the whole counsel of God. And here's the reality. Joel Osteen says, I just stay in my lane. I'm just an encourager. He stands before a congregation and says, I'm a pastor, a shepherd of the people of God. He cannot just stay in his lane. God told Ezekiel, God, the, the Apostle Paul told the, the Ephesians that if the wicked are going astray, and you do not proclaim to them repentance and the whole counsel of God, their blood is on your hands. I can't stand up here and say, I'm your pastor, but I've got a a PhD in um, the life and study of John Calvin, so we're just going to study John Calvin every, and I'm just going to stay in my lane. I cannot do that and be faithful to God. Anyone that claims to be a pastor, a shepherd of the people of God, who preaches a false gospel, obviously, but who also refuses to give the whole counsel of God, is guilty of the sins of his people and of leading them astray. And so, do we have false prophets in our midst? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. And they are leading many, many astray. I could keep going on that for a long time, but I don't want you to be led astray. I don't want you to think that what God wants most for you is to get away from those people that are poor and struggling because they're just going to drag you down and walk into God's best life now for you, which means riches and being able to buy thousand and ten thousand dollar suits and have jets and planes and all that that is the doctrine of demons and that's what false prophets say many will come in my name saying i'm the christ and will deceive many and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars so false christs evidence one evil age Two, wars and rumors of wars. But what's the, what's the practical exhortation here to God's people? What's next here? Highlight it, underline it, circle it. Tattoo it on your forehead. Not quite, figuratively speaking. See that you are not troubled. Don't be troubled. Don't lose hope. Don't despair. 
When we think about this world and what's going on, and when we think about the eschaton, the glorious coming of Christ to wrap all of this up, it should give us hope. God doesn't want us to live in despair. He wants us to live trusting Him. And here's the reality. If you believe that God has promised comfort and ease and not having to exercise discernment because of false Christ and and no wars or rumors of wars in this world, and that's what God has promised you in this life, you will be troubled. We are troubled when we believe as a promise of God something that He has not promised. We believe, we are troubled when we believe as a promise of God something God has not promised us. There's so many people that have believed that God has promised them something. It's not a promise of God and they despair. How many people out there have prayed that a loved one be healed, that loved one die, and they abandon God because they prayed and God didn't heal their loved one? They believe that God promised the healing of their loved one. God has never promised you that. Don't be troubled, Jesus says. These things must come to pass. But notice what he says. But the end is what? Not yet. Not yet. Now, D.A. Carson put it this way. I love the way he puts things. He said, there are some exuberant and how did he put it? I'm trying to remember exactly his words. Exuberant and misguided preachers out there. Exuberant and misguided preachers out there who will tell you that wars and rumors of wars are evidences that the return of Christ is at hand. He says, but that's the exact opposite of what Jesus is actually saying here in the text. Read it. What does he say? He says, don't be troubled because the end is not yet. (laughs) But yet we hear all these people saying, look at the news. Look at all these wars. Look at everything that's going on. The end must be here. That's not what Jesus said. Am I missing something? (laughs) He says the end is not yet. Yet, for nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, pestilences, earthquakes in various places. Does this sound anything like those four seals that are broken in Revelation? All these are the beginning of sorrows. You see that? It's not saying we we look at those... We look at those things happening and, oh no, there's wars and rumors of wars. Jesus must be coming in my generation. Now, this concept, beginning of sorrows, this this literally means beginning of birth pangs. Now, I've got a wife who's had a few of those birth pangs start up, you know, and then they kind of stop for a little while, and then they'll start up again, and there'll be a, a labor, and hopefully it's short and not too painful for her, but the reality is that the women I've talked to have said, yeah, it hurts a little bit when you have a baby. And when you're watching your wife having those contractions, and she's holding your hand, and she's, and I'm like, yeah, it hurts now, baby. <laughs> <You know? laughs> okay, been, I've been there before, you know, I'm looking forward to that, but the, the reality is, the, the Jews had this concept, they, they called it the birth pangs of the Messiah. When the Messiah would come, there would be birth pangs, there would be turmoils and, and conflicts in the world and whatnot that would precede the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus is tying into that concept. But what's the admonition he's given to his disciples? Don't be troubled. The end is not yet. And one of the things that's very clear from the scriptures regarding the early church, and it's brought out in First um, Thessalonians, for instance, and Second Thessalonians, is that there, there were some people that were concerned they had missed Christ. And you can see by the exhortations Jesus is giving here, he's trying to reassure them, you're not going to miss this. Okay? So he's saying, 
the ultimate admonition here isn't be watching for wars and rumors of wars because that's a sign that Jesus is right here. The ultimate admonition is don't fear that you've missed him because you're seeing these types of things because these are going to happen. Okay? You see the point? And is that, is that encouraging? Yes, it is. Yes, it is. I do believe that there are some signs that are more specific in Scripture regarding the coming of Christ, and we'll look at one of those in a minute. But this text is saying the end is not yet. These are just the beginning of sorrows, and these things have been going on since Jesus preached this message, and there's been an ebb and flow of those things. In the very lives of the disciples, most of these disciples who heard this very message, there was a period of one year that there were no less than four Roman Empire emperors. And there was all kinds of turmoil going on in the, in the Roman Empire. Jesus and them, don't despair, the end's not yet. Okay? So... False Christ, wars, rumors of wars, kingdom against kingdom, famines, pestilences, earthquakes in various places, all these are the beginning of sorrows. One other, one other thing to think about, you know, you had, and D.A. Carson mentioned this, he says, I have a, a number of books on my shelves dated from 1936 to 1944. He says, in which those books were predominantly saying Jesus has got to be coming because what was going on? Hitler had, had gone from basic obscurity to gaining power. This massive world war is taking place. It's a second world war, great war in the same century. And people are looking at that and they look at a passage like this, wars, rumors of wars, it's got to be it. But the fact of the matter is Jesus didn't come. And he hasn't come yet. Because this wasn't given as an absolute specific sign. And there'll be no wars, rumors, wars, anything like that. There won't be earthquakes, pestilences, famines, anything like that until the time is right here. And then all those things will start up. That's not the way this is presented. You see, this is more general. Just like in Revelation and the seals that I mentioned. Okay. What are some things then he gives to prepare his people for what they're going to face. And these things apply to us, folks. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, will hate one another. Many false prophets rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Does that sound anything like Revelation? He who overcomes, he who overcomes, he who overcomes, he who endures to the end shall be saved. How do we demonstrate the fruit of our repentance? How do we make our calling and election sure? By persevering till the end. The Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he said, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you will win it. And he says, therefore, I discipline myself. He says, I'm not like one who's beating the air. I buffet my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. What is he saying? There's no coasting in the, in the Christian life. You know what happens if we coast? We go downhill. <laughs> because this world is slanted away from God. John Owen, in commenting on Colossians and the mortification of sin, said, and I paraphrase, sin must be, we must be killing sin or sin will be killing us. We have to recognize that tribulation, being hated for the sake of Christ, being betrayed, false prophets arising, lawlessness abounding, that these things are to be expected. And then we'll be prepared. And if we recognize these are to be expected, it will be less likely our love for Christ will go cold when it happens. 
You see what I'm saying? Does that make sense? If you think God has promised you a cushy life, bed of roses, think of any metaphor you can to think of ease and prosperity and everything else and that that's what God has promised you in this life. And that doesn't happen. It's going to be hard for your love not to grow cold because you're loving a false promise. And you're loving ultimately a false God. You see how practical these passages are in regards to our lives and even where we live right now? Things that must take place and God has decreed must take place before he comes. Verse 14, the gospel of the kingdom preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations and then the end will come. Another that God has decreed and will not take place. We saw this last time from the cry of the martyrs. Everyone that God has decreed will die for the word of God and for the testimony must die before Christ will come. So here we go, I'll tell you. Jesus is coming back and I guarantee you that the preaching of the gospel to all of God's elect around this world and every single one of God's elect being saved and brought in and every one of God's martyrs being killed must happen and and Jesus will not come until that happens. I can say that with the authority of scripture. (laughs) But I can't tell you when that will be because I don't have have, uh, special glasses that can identify the elect in all the ages and look down through history and say, there they are. And I don't know who's going to be martyred. But when it comes down to it, Jesus said in verse 36 of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my father only. So if anybody stands up and says Jesus is coming absolutely on this day and this hour, I usually say, well, he's probably not coming then. (laughs) Very unlikely that he's coming then. But based on the multiple admonitions of scripture, We must live life every second of every day ready for his coming. These admonitions are given to us so that we'll always be ready. We'll always be ready. Well, those I believe are are general statements. I mentioned that I thought that there was something a little more specific in Scripture even than these general statements, and that these general things are not direct and specific signs that the end is near. I think 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 gets a little bit more specific. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. It gets a little more specific, but again, it's hard for a human being to be dogmatic about when this is taking place. And so, thus, Jesus was accurate in saying that none of us know the exact day or hour. Okay? What do we see as an evidence of something that must take place preceding the final return of Christ? 2 Thessalonians 2. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. What's that talking about? The final return of Christ. Does that parallel at all what we've seen in Matthew chapter 24 about the angels going forth and gathering the elect and Matthew chapter 13 which speaks about that and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, etc., etc. Yes, final coming of Christ. We ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us as though the day of Christ had come. Again, don't worry, you're not going to miss it. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come. Oh, our radar's up, antenna's up. What, what's going to have to happen first? That day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. So here's something that Jesus says must take place before he comes. Falling away refers to apostasy. 
Jesus mentioned, even in those general statements, that the hearts of many would grow cold. And that that had to happen before he would come. See the parallel. Now, it's hard for us, though, in looking on and saying, oh, well, that's happening right now. Why is that? For one, we tend to to look at this world with a microscope instead of a telescope. We tend to look just at our nation and say, oh, this is happening. Look at where our nation's going. United States is a drop in a bucket. You look at human history, and we've been around for, what, a couple hundred years in human history? And we think we're like the greatest thing since sliced bread. We made it, you know, I don't know. (laughs) We're just a drop in a bucket in the grand scheme of things. And we're just one nation amongst hundreds in this world. And yeah, our nation's going going, uh, down quite a bit. And the West, in general, is crashing and burning quite a bit. But there's a revival going on in the East in many places. You know, so is this now? I don't know. I, I can't say with certainty. I really can't. But what's, what's the admonition? Don't be shaken thinking that Christ has already come and you've missed him. Okay, there's one. And that there will be a man of sin revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. This seems to be described in such a way as saying that this will be a little bit more evident when it happens. And so perhaps we'll, we'll see this and we'll recognize when this person is on the scene. Some have tied this in with the Antichrist. We'll get into that more when we get into Revelation, but suffice it to say, Jesus said these things have to happen before he will come. And he says, do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things, and now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. What this is saying in a nutshell is that God is restraining, God is restraining. And when it comes time, God's going to release the floodgate and ultimately it'll terminate in the coming of Christ and full judgment taking place. But this indicates the sovereignty of God. Is God in control of, of the time frame? Is God in control of these things? Yes, he is. Does that give us hope? It sure should. It sure should. So what are... What are we going to do? It says here that there are many who will believe a lie. God will send them delusion that they should believe a lie. In verse 11, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But what's the encouragement and admonition? We are bound to give thanks to God always for you. Verse 13, beloved brethren, Beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, Comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. God has his elect, his chosen ones. They will not be deceived. They will not fall away. It's God who keeps us by his grace. That's encouraging. When we look around the world and we're seeing a messed up world, it's encouraging to know. Well, what what we're going to do here is I'm going to conclude some of this with the Lord's help next week. I do simply want to point out, as we're wrapping this up, 
Again, how many practical admonitions do we see throughout this over and over again? And I do want to say as well that two of the things that are commonly misunderstood in these passages, one, the exuberant and misguided preachers who will say these things are evidences that the end is here, and Jesus says, no, it's not yet. Two, the one taken and the other left in, in, the, in the field and in the household. Who is taken and who is left according to the text? Is there anything that indicates in the text who is left and who is taken? Now, according to the, the dispensational idea, the ones who are taken are those who are part of the church, believers who are secretly raptured out. And they're the ones that are taken and the, the sinful worldly people are left. That's the opposite. It's backwards. Who's taken and who's left? What is mentioned here? What is the context? The context is the coming of Christ. What happens at the coming of Christ? Judgment. The judgment. What happened in the days of Noah? It says, as in the days of Noah, so shall this be. Who was taken and who was left in the days of Noah? God left the righteous ones in the days of Noah. And he took out the unrighteous in judgment. See the connection here? Coming of Christ happens. Judgment happens. Who is taken in judgment? The unbelievers. Who is left? The righteous. So it, it says here, is this not, isn't this not plain? But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. <laughs> it couldn't be more clear. Who was taken all away? Not the ones who had entered the ark. You see? And did not know until the flood came and took them away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. One will be taken in judgment and the other will not be, will be blessed. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and the other left. Watch, therefore, here's the admonition. Watch for these admonitions. You see, it, it, are, these, are these details given just to give us some intellectual knowledge about what's going to happen? No, there's exhortation after exhortation after exhortation. Practical thing for our lives after all of these. So what should we do? Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. People going about their business, doing their thing, day in and day out, out in the field, grinding corn, working away, Boom, Jesus comes and the judgment happens. Be ready because we don't know exactly when he's coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, if we had all of these clues and everything, we could look around the world and say, oh, we've got wars and rumors of wars, and we've got all this. I know he's coming at such and such a time. It wouldn't really fit with this statement. Those things are given to us. We look at them, and we long for home. We long for the coming of Christ. We're prepared to stand and face persecution. But the reality is, we don't know exactly when. And the admonition is, be ready when he comes. Be ready when he comes. Father, may we truly be found ready. May we be watchful. May we in our lives be living day in and day out for your glory. 
using all of our resources, all of our talents, all of our gifts for your glory and the good of others so that when Jesus comes, we are not caught off guard. We're not found hating and beating your people. We're not found with love towards you grown cold. But we're found living, living, living for your glory. And going about the things of this life and this world for your glory. So in one sense, may it be like Martin Luther when he was asked what he would do if he knew that the Lord was coming at such and such a time on that day or the next day, and he said, I would go and plant a tree. May it be that we are living our lives day in and day out for your glory in such a way that we are found ready whenever Christ comes. And may we not lose hope. And may we stand firm in the midst of it all. We pray this for Christ's glory. Amen.